everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been sharing the show with their friends, listening to all the episodes, reaching out to me, uh, krasplus1 at gmail.com. For those of you that don't know, you can hit me up, ask me some questions, um, give me ideas for guests. I've been utilizing that a lot and uh, reaching out to some incredible guests. A lot of the people on the show are people that I have known for a really long time, um, but I'm you know, also reaching out to artists that I'm a fan of or people that I've heard about or just interesting people in general. So keep sending me suggestions. I really appreciate that. You can also follow us at Kraz plus one. That's K-R-A-Z plus one on Instagram. And uh, we've got a really, really great show today. Very, very appreciative that my man Joe Russo took the time to talk with me. And uh, we go way back, man. I've known him since I think 2000 is when we met, or possibly even earlier. Uh, his band Fat Mama back then used to play gigs with my band Soul Live. And when the duo first started playing the Knitting Factory, uh, I was like living right by there, and my brother's offices and studio were like across the street. So I used to hang out there all the time, sit in with them, and it was so cool to watch them build into what it became and then splinter off into collaborations with the guys from Fish and obviously Joe has played with Phil Lesh and with Further and then the story of J-Rad which we talk about on the show is pretty incredible. What started as a one-off concept for a gig turned into a massive touring act. I mean they're selling out huge places and touring all over the country so it was really cool to kind of hear the whole story and uh, that progression. Um, I love all the guys in the band, Tommy Hamilton, Scott Metzger, Dave Drywitz. I've gotten to play with all of them in different capacities. But uh, yeah, people really, really gravitated toward their brand um, of Grateful Dead, which is very, very different from the original. Uh, so we get into that. Also, Joe's been releasing some really great solo material. So we get into that, and I'll play some of that at the very end of the show. As always, I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together, and they have a lot of other great content. Content, and you can check that out at OsirisPod.com. I also wanted to remind everyone that every single episode of Plus One has a correlating playlist. If you go, if you're on Spotify specifically and you're using your phone, you go to details under the episode and then you'll see featured music. So it's uh, curated by myself and sometimes by the, the guest as well and kind of outlines our conversation. It's music by them. It's music that we talk about, music that's inspired them. So make sure you check that out on Spotify. I'm also going to start doing shout outs for different artists and different releases that are happening. Um, I've been listening to a ton of music during this quarantine and I want to make sure you guys know about things that you know I'm listening to and that maybe you haven't heard of. And in turn, I'd also like you guys to send me music you think I should uh, check out. Preferably new releases, but really anything. And you can hit me up again. It's krasplus1 at gmail.com. Uh, right now, I just want to give a shout to Tash Neal, who has a brand new track out uh, called Like a Glove, and his album, Charge It to the Game, is coming out in March. I love this album. Um, I've been able to listen to it because I worked on the record, and I'm so happy it's finally coming out. Also, uh, the Delvon Lamar Organ Trio just put out a record called I Told You So. If you like organ music and soul and funk, I promise you'll love these guys. Also, my good friend Eric Finland 
is putting out a record. Incredible organ player. He plays in my band, the Trio E3. And uh, he's got Eric Kalb on the recording, Will Bernard, and some other really great people. That's coming out February 6th, so make sure you check that out. All right, I'm excited to get into this interview with Joe Russo, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, you know him as an incredible drummer, also a great producer, songwriter, guitarist, and vocalist, a founding member of the Benevento Russo duo, and the leader of Joe Russo's Almost Dead. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, my good friend, Joe Russo. You and I are both like engineers. Like, I can't, your studio, and by the way, I've been like listening to your solo projects for the last couple days. Oh, thanks, and man. just I like that. loving it and the production thanks. and the songwriting and um, your like melodic sense is deep, man. It's really, really <laughs> thanks, cool. Man. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you, Eric. And I had known, I had known that side of you to a certain degree, but I don't right. know why I hadn't like dove, hadn't uh, dove in earlier a lot the, of music out there to the new stuff. Well, that's crazy, right? It's like so hard to release stuff right now and like mm-hmm. get it above the like noise. Oh, totally. I know. I, you know, also when I put that out, I didn't even like, I just put it up on like fucking whatever on yeah. my like daughter's birthday. I, there was no like rollout. There was no like pre-save. There's nothing through any sort of like proper channels. I was just like, fuck this. I'm sick of this music and it needs to get out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just I did that album. with my last, I did like a, a concept album where oh, I Oh yeah, totally. That was and great. I put I it that. out under like another name too. I did everything you're not supposed to do, you know, in right. terms of yeah. like how to business wise. Mm. Um, but I was kind of feeling the same way. I was like, you know, I don't really want to do this through a label. I already kind of knew how right. I wanted to present it, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I did not really do like the setup and the publicist <laughs> and all the things you're supposed to do. Oh my God. I know. I know. You know, but, we live and we learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this next one, I'm trying to do it a, a little differently, but you know, you never know. Yeah. It's like, I just want to consistently keep making music Right and and uh, hope that people hear it. But yeah, man, these these records are like uh, amazing um, and uh, such like cool sonic. I was actually curious because um, you know the other thing that I want to see credits these days, and I feel like <sighs> dude, with, right? Uh, I, I miss albums. Like I do. I know you put it out on yeah. vinyl. I actually want to get the vinyl so I can. Yeah, see. I'll I'll send you one. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, for but sure. the new track. Um, well, there's all. Um, all laid in sign. Am I saying right. that? Lang Zine. Yeah. I always say yeah. that wrong. Who's playing guitar on that? That's Sam Cohen. Oh, it is. I love yeah. Sam, dude. So Sam oh. produced that one. Oh, he did. Uh, Sounds so I put so out, I put dope. out two like kind of singles after, after Fairbonnie and yeah. Josh Kaufman did the first one. Yeah. And then Sam Cohen did the, the other okay. one. Okay. I love so, Stay yeah. Light as well. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks. I've been yeah. listening to those like in rotation. And is that Stuart oh, Bogey on like bass clarinet? That yep, bogey's on clarinet and some other stuff on that one. I forget what else. He's he's just the gravy man. He he comes yeah. in and just makes all the magic happen. Yeah, he's amazing. Um so tell me a little bit about the the process of, of Faraboni and how that came together. That one, I mean, that was kinda like, you know, classic <clears throat> my first record kind of thing, you know, where you have all these scraps and these ideas and or I mean, you've been putting out music for so long now. I, I hadn't put out anything under my name since the second duo record. Right. Uh and that was like two thousand six. You know? Right, right. Uh and I always had the luxury of having Marco there as my 
you know, co-author, you right. know, where I, I don't fancy myself really a multi-instrumentalist as, you know, I can get around on stuff. Yeah. And back in the duo, I was like, oh, cool. Well, I have this part and I could just have a part. And then Marco would be like, oh, cool. I have a part. And then he would change the, the key or whatever and yeah. make it work. This was my first time having to complete something, you know, like point A to point B or Z. Uh, so it kind of started with just these scraps of ideas and realizing I needed to actually finish something. And some of these ideas go back to, shit, I don't even know, like 2010. There's like, I think the guitar riff for uh, uh, that tune, Perfectibilitarians, like the whole demo, I think was done in 2010. Wow. Um, so it's like I had just all this stuff sitting around. And then a couple of years back when I had my studio, I just started, you know, delving in and kind of trying to not be as scared to, you know, do stuff. And and, and things were coming out in different directions. Like on that record, it's kind of all, all over the shop. And at first, I was really concerned about that, where I was like, am I putting out kind of like a, you know, instrumental thing? Am I putting out a, you know, rock record? Am I putting out this or that? And I was really nervous. And it was almost like bi bisected into two different projects. And then at the end of the day, I was like, wait, this is what I sound like. So I'm just going to put this all here because all this stuff is is showing my influence and where I'm coming from, yeah. you know, with yeah, writing or this stuff. But there's to. a sound to it. Like, I think once you got it all out, you were, mm. it all flows. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not that jagged, you know? Right. Yeah. You can see it's coming from the same well. And Dan right. Goodwin, who engineered and mixed, uh, uh, or uh, who mixed and mastered it is, is just the best in the business. As far as I'm concerned, he just throws this, this sound on everything he does that I think really, tied the room together yeah it was very rich sounding and a lot of there's a lot of just like cool nuggets throughout you know what i mean and it's like a very patient album uh yeah i definitely they, didn't want to make like a drummer's record right. that was definitely not my goal my the drums are all pretty much on every song mixed lower than one probably should yeah you know because I, I like dan would be like dude let's put the drums up i was like no no, no drums, drums yeah yeah you know just wanted to give that a shot. But yeah, I hear a lot of different things. There's like Radiohead in there. There's Afrobeat mm. vibes. There's like, mm -hmm. like, but yeah, you can't, you can't really say it's one thing. You hear elements right. of a lot of different things, which is yeah. kind of my favorite. Yeah, it's fun. Type of record that's not, you can't really put it in a genre. Right. Thanks, man. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank um, you, thank so you. how has the quarantine been treating you in terms of music and, and creativity? Not so hot, man. Not going to lie. Uh, you know, I think just like all of us, when this whole thing started, everybody felt this pressure of, you know, thinking one, thinking you had a ton of time. And right. now, you know, as a new dad, yeah, it's not quite that, you know. So with two kids, I lost my studio, you know, in Brooklyn. We moved yep. to New Jersey, uh, moved into this house, which I'm so thankful for. And I have, a, you know, a very small room here to work within, which is great. But then the thing I didn't think I'd uh, realize I'd be contending with is like babies' naps and oh, yeah. like you know just like normal stuff. And and I think I found myself in this place. I need to like kind of sit and marinate when I'm working or creating or whatever, you know. And I feel uh, like there's the you know forty minutes go do something, yeah, you yeah. know, kind of feeling. <laughs> and I, I have a hard time with that. So it's it's gone back and forth. Um, in early on, I did some, some tracking, which I was really psyched about, did the stuff on the new, uh, Fruit Bats record, oh, cool. uh, that's coming out pretty soon. Um, did, uh, uh, the hell else did I do? 
couple, yeah, just like a few, a few different things. Um, and then I think I got sidetracked by just like hanging for a little bit, you know, right, I think I'm, I'm, I'm uh, the, the lack of, uh, physical proximity and collaboration, I think is, has been a little hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I also have the home studio, which is great, but it is kind of like at any time that someone can, you know, Hey, what's going on over there? What's going on? What are you doing? Okay. I got to go in there. Or like I go in to make coffee and then get sucked into whatever. And I love it. Of course. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. But yeah, yeah, I think I've kind of, I've, I've, I've put on more of the family hat, I think, than I maybe thought I was going to or intended to yeah. and I'm totally cool with it. You know, like uh, at this point I'm just kind of like keeping my head down. Let's get out of this thing and get back to being able to interact. And I think my inspiration will, will come back a little bit right, stronger. Right. Than, you know? And are yeah. you pretty, so you're, you're in Hopewell, New Jersey. Is yeah. that the town? Yeah. Uh, and where, what town did you actually grow up in? I, I grew up in were... Franklin Lakes, uh, same town as Marco, but I yeah. pretty much grew up in Oakland, New Jersey, right? Okay, uh, which is the town over. Like I went to high school there and did all that stuff. Yeah, so like North North Jersey. So, what was um, your musical kind of upbringing like? Was there a lot of music in your house? Were your, your parents musicians? My dad, my dad played bass in a in like a top forties uh, band, like a bar band. Nice, uh, but, nice. But but stopped that by the time I was born, I think, or or maybe I was like one year old. Um, yeah, I mean, music was always celebrated in the house. Um, I was the third kid. I was the oopsie baby, so I was uh, <laughs> se- seven years younger than my sister and five under under my brother. Right, right. So I kind of had the run of the the you know the stereo. Uh, to whatever I felt like putting on kind of thing. Um, a lot of influence from my older brother and my older sister. Uh, and yeah, man, it was a lot of butt rock. It was a lot of metal. It was, yep. uh, you know, uh, Kiss. I was huge into Kiss. I, do, my, uh, I had an older brother too, and the Kiss posters in the basement, Van Halen. Come on, totally Van Halen. Uh, you know, yeah, I was in some pretty butt rocky stuff. Uh, Keel. Okay. Keel, which is a pretty random one. Actually, that strangely Neil Casal and I bonded on. Oh, nice. Um, and his his Jersey uh, butt rock roots. But yeah, yeah, like all that shit. And then, you know, of course, Zeppelin, huge Zeppelin. You know, once that. I feel like Zeppelin's path. always like the turning point of like, you're going to be right. a musician. If you like, <laughs> right. you know, like if my friends that were into Zeppelin either became musicians or like real like music heads. Right, right. You know, it was yeah. like Kiss, Van Halen, whatever else. Then if you got really deep into Zeppelin, you like bonded right. with your other Zeppelin. I to- I, to- I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a rite of passage, and there is a gate a gateway there for sure because it's just. I mean, you know, we could sit here for hours and talk about Zeppelin, how deep that goes. And, you know, even just the different instrumentation that band used, you know, yeah. and all this stuff and the recording techniques and stuff that we now appreciate and can hear. And uh, But even when you're first getting that, I think, uh, yeah, you recognize there's something different going on there. And, and that definitely makes you take the uh, the turn into some more right. stuff. Well, and, I mean, yeah. even just going back to you saying in your album, you, you weren't sure about connecting all these different things. I mean, think about like Led Zeppelin three, it being like mandolin right. and acoustic and like, and then the next yeah. track's like the hardest rock track ever. Totally, totally. Um, awesome. They weren't afraid to do that, but you kind of no. had to, it's so interesting because they're also the biggest band ever, but right. you listen back to those records now and you're like, okay, if someone like tried to do that now with that, like this genre blending, I would it yeah. be I don't know maybe it would but um god who I knows like, you know I feel like they like changed the game in a lot of ways the first thing totally. I ever learned on guitar was a Led Zeppelin 
track, nice. which was then became, you know, the rabbit hole. So when did drumming come into your life? Drumming, I was uh, I was eight years old and, yeah. you know, wanted to be in that Kiss poster and wanted to be <laughs> Peter Chris yeah. so bad. And uh, yeah, my, my, my brother had like an old snare drum and like cymbal combo thing that he got, you know, and, and I had heard about it for like a year that it was somewhere in the house, you know, and, uh, and um, I, I remember begging my mom, like, please, we got to find it. We got to find this. We got to find it. And I was like, in my mind, it was going to be this giant like drum kit. But so she like found it and it was this, you know, crappy little snare drum with like a little cymbal. Yeah. And I sat down and, 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 you know, would just bash on it for a while. And um, they got me kind of a beater kit about a year later, uh, which was probably something like amazing, but yeah. like, at the time, it wasn't like a sweet jet black Tama, you know, yeah. rock star. Uh, <laughs> and basically, you know, started taking lessons then. And then I got my first like real kit about a year after that. And, you know, just kind of, yeah, just just fell in love with it. Uh, a lot of a lot of ACDC, a lot yep. of Kiss. And, and then, of course, you know, the Rush days, if you're oh, yeah. a drummer, a drummer in Jersey, um, that's that's the next gateway, you know, and that and that took hold deep that's when i got oh, yeah. really into like all the odd time signature stuff and you know the progier side of life you started taking lessons in like your early early teen years i think probably i mean i think i was actually eight oh when you I first got your first taking lesson back then okay. my first lesson like so like on a pad and all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. um with a guy a local guy and then i think when i was like 11 or 12 i started taking lessons in nyack uh from a guy named frank marino Yep. Where I first met Mr. Adam Deitch, who was another student of of Frank. That was such an interesting connection that I found out, you know, years and years later. Totally. But how totally. did you connect with him? God, I think I was probably in like eighth grade, something like that, and I was, you know, one of Frank's star students. Right. And uh, was feeling pretty good about myself, you know, feeling fairly confident. And one day. I think I was probably being a little extra cocky. And he's like, oh, cool. Hang out here for a second. I want to bring this other kid in who's your age. And he brings fucking Deitch in, man. And Deitch just sits down and just like fucking blew my brains away. And it was just like, not in like in a fucked up way, but like he sat down. I was like, oh shit, this dude is like actually the dude. (laughs) And it was like a really nice moment because I got fucking smoked, you know? And, and, And like the ego just went... And left my body, and that and that was Adam, and he and I didn't connect for years after that. It wasn't like we would see each other until we all started. You know, we'd all be at like Wetlands. You know, you guys playing, and we're I was playing downstairs with like Fat Mama or something. I think I remember also, or maybe it happened with Fat Mama, but I also remember bringing him and a whole crew to the Knitting Factory to what to one of the early duo duo. gigs, and we all hung Uh out, and I think I sat in and. I'm you know, sure. Just got, you know, playing for beer back then. It was like. Right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> that was it. It was 50 bucks each and all the Heineken you could drink. And and yeah, that, those were great times because, yeah, all you guys would come down and sit in with us and really helped kind of start our whole thing was, you know, you and like Stanton and just all sorts of people would just come down and, you know, after their gig. You know, wherever you were playing, we became kind of the hang, the, the hang, late hang, sure. where like you know. And then my brother's like label office was right next to the Ning Factory. Exactly, so exactly. Yeah, right so there. Was there. yeah, I just found a picture recently of me and Derek Trucks in like. I don't know when, whenever the early knitting factory day, maybe 2000, was it? Or is it 2001? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, and, I think uh, around 2001. And with a skinny Costello behind me in the Dude, picture. I got to send amazing. you that one. That's but, awesome. Um, 
what was the pathway to Colorado? Because then, you know, I think the first time I maybe met you was with Fat Mama, um, which you connected with in Boulder. Am I right? Did you end up going to school out there or did you, were you just hanging there? I was going to go to school. So yeah, in 95, um, my mom died. I was uh, a junior in high school and I was just kind of, you know, I I think I was having a hard time before any of that shit happened anyway. And I was just, all I wanted to do was play music. I was over school, all this stuff. So I ended up dropping out of high school and uh, kind of like working and living for a little while in Jersey. And then a buddy of mine, uh, Steve Vidaich, who's uh, in Citizen Cope's band, and we go way, way back. Oh, we were yeah. in my first bands together yeah. in high school and stuff. He and his now wife uh, moved to Boulder. And I was pretty much all set to go to Berkeley. I, I had gone up. I had met with, I saw Marco for the first time in years. I like yeah. went up and did like a thing and was working on scholarships and all that stuff. And um, he went to visit Steve and Melissa out in Boulder and like, saw Modesky Martin with the Fox saw like mountains saw these like beautiful Colorado girls and the whole thing just like I had never experienced anything like it and I was like oh dude no I'm I'm moving to Colorado and I came back and I think like 10 days later Steve and I drove like my piece of shit car out to Boulder and 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 I was gonna go to school but then um the first week I was there I met someone who said that there was a band looking for a drummer and that was Fat Mama and uh, and that certainly kind of took the whole the the rest of the course, you know, really a large pivot point there. And were you guys touring like right off the bat, or was it mostly like playing in Boulder and and Denver? Yeah, I think it was about a. We probably if I moved out there in '96, our first tour was in '97. So they were already kind of like you know the hometown crew. People dug them, you know, doing funk, funky covers, you know, all this stuff. The stuff we all, you know. do and did uh and so yeah i joined that band we played in town for about a year you know we would do like the fox and the boulder theater and all that stuff um and we started writing you know a bunch of music uh and yeah i think our first tour was in in 1997 so before soul live okay so i think and then i know we did gigs i think it was fat mama and soul live at some point, I, I remember at least doing something at like Stone Church, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I remember, yeah, yeah, I remember that really well. Yeah, and you guys, yeah, you guys were that was the suit, the suit times. Oh yeah, you guys oh, yeah. were looking that was sharp. We would, like roll up in the van, load our gear, pretending like with hoodies on, pretending we were like the crew, and then like go <laughs> right. change somewhere, come back and walk in like all yeah. style. Like, oh, the- what's this place all about? Cool. <laughs> I haven't been here for three. It hours. looked great, but don't smell the suit because we've been wearing <laughs> oh, it remember. every. I remember that. <laughs> I remember having that conversation actually, and now I I, to, I I mean I vividly remember. I can close my eyes and, and picture that night uh, vividly. Um, you guys were killing it, and and we were just such a bunch of scumbags, like rolling like eight deep, just like bleh, yeah, uh, you know, playing our whatever nonsense music we were playing. Oh, uh, those those were good times. I remember the Stone Church because like the, there would be like dogs walking on stage, and the people would just <laughs> totally. put their beer down on my amp and like it oh, was yeah. just so. But yeah. you were like in someone's living room, basically. It was pretty yeah. casual. It was pretty, ca- but yeah, I loved that. I mean, those were always such great gigs. Like I, I, I loved it. They were that place had a vibe. I remember we it always did. had good gigs there. 
Agreed. Yeah, man. Yeah, that, like that. The Northeast had kind of a scene back then. Everyone had their little cards with their dates. With oh, their, the tour dates. Remember the mailing cards. Brett, the sax player from Fat Mama, sent us all on a like a group text not that long ago. Like one of a, a picture. He has like all of these old things. You yeah, know, yeah. it was a picture of like that. And I was like, oh man. What a yeah. different time. It was such a and different so, time. I, so I mean, exciting. back in, even before that, in like the mid nineties, when Lettuce was starting, you know, I was like the agent, the the manager, lo, the gear guy. I, I would totally. print up these ghetto flyers. Like I would like take random <laughs> photographs and put them on a piece of tape them on a piece of paper. Oh yeah. Photocopy it and write in the dates and then run around town handing them and trying to get people to shows and how great was that though? Like how how exciting was that time though? Like of doing all that shit, it was just the best, you know. Get like making those shit ass flyers. Yeah, yeah. You know, every every part of that was was really exciting because it was all everything was just so brand new and everything's starting and you're everybody's you know you're in a band and you're just trying to do your thing. Around that same time, I also met Marco, you know, separately right. um, back in Boston through the Slip guys who were like, I, yes. so I went to a, a summer like guitar camp thing, basically because my parents were like, I was getting in all, all sorts of trouble and my older brother <laughs> was going and he, they were like, take him uh, with you. And I be- had just learned a few chords and that summer was where I amazing. really like started learning and Brad Barr was there. And, wow, yeah. and uh, his younger brother, Andrew, came to visit and we all hung out and jammed. And mm. I was like, oh, man, these dudes can like really play. Um, <laughs> so I would try to hang. And, and then anyway, I got to know them really well. And then when the slip started touring, they were like one of the first bands that I knew, you know, that was like they were like doing their thing and they had their little date cards. Had their date <laughs> and cards, I remember their little logo. hanging out with them in Boston and I met Marco for the first time and he was just like a madman on the piano. They were all like jamming in some random house. I remember that house. I'd been to that house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which was also, I think, on the same street or in the same area as the Fat Bag house, the band Fat Bag, which was Adam Deitch. Schmeens right. from Lettuce and their whole crew. That's actually when I fucking first saw Deitch again because yeah. I think Fat Mama and Fat Bag yeah. played some gig together in like like Maine or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you know some random like brewery or something. And I think that was the first time actually I forgot about that band. It's but funny. yeah, I think you're right. That that whole street had like a bunch of different like houses. Yeah, there's like Allegheny, and the then there was also Allegheny. some other yeah. bands and some other players on that street that I've like stayed in touch with. Jeff Basker was another guy who lived on that street. Oh the yeah, producer who was in Lettuce totally. for a while. It's, it's funny right. how even like whatever thirty years later, we're still like kind of hanging with the same crew. I mean, it expands yeah. and it changes, but right. a lot of us have have. I mean, a lot of the same characters. Totally. The nucleus stays, you know, and, and, you know, it it is, it's a testament to those old friendships and musical connections. Uh, Yeah, it's nice to know there's been people next to you for 30 years, you know. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the inception of the duo, because I, I did a little bit of research this morning okay. beyond my mm-hmm. own memory. And right. uh, 
So our good friend Jake uh, Safranowski, who I knew yep. as the door guy at the Wetlands initially, who became a booker. Um, you know, the rocks, people probably know the rocks off cruise. If not, that was like a staple in the early days of all of our thing. But right. he asked you to put together a Madonna tribute. Is this true? I, uh, <laughs> yes. As, <laughs> as part of a Madonna, tri- he would do these like weird, like birthday tribute uh, shows. Yeah. He always had, you know, he was, he was an early, uh, he was a very creative live music promoter in the sure. early days. Things sure. that you find very commonplace now weren't really at the time. So he would do these like, hey, he's like, well, it's Madonna's birthday. So we're going to have a Madonna birthday bash and we're going to have everybody come and play like Madonna tunes. Right. Um, and Marco and I had been doing like kind of a trio slash quartet kind of thing at this like Moroccan restaurant in Hell's Kitchen called Tajine. You remember that okay, joint at all? Yeah, I think Shit I actually may have played there. It's like a, a Way tiny back. little basement. And it was Mar- Marco and myself, and I think, and Rich Stein was playing per- percussion. Okay. You know Rich, I think, yeah. right? He was a Berkeley guy. And uh, and there was a saxophone player, too. And we would do, you know, these improv jams. So the first actual time that we did a duo was this Madonna's Birthday Bash, where it was organ and drums. And we played, like, Borderline and, like, <laughs> Cherish, I think, and, like, one other one. That and, is crazy. Uh, and that was the first time we played as a duo. And then that turned into... Jake had also started booking um, the Knitting Factory at the time, and he was doing the tap bar, which was the free bar downstairs. And, you know, always trying to hook a hook a brother up, he gave me like three different nights there. Yeah. And one of them, uh, I did a group called Pistons Fire at 11, which was me and Scott Metzger oh, and uh, Matt Kohut, um, who had played with Ween and stuff. And he's, yeah. he's a deep, deep... Uh, fell in, in these parts and that's where I first met Chris Harvard. Another one was called like some other stupid shit with uh, Jonathan Goldberger and some incredible sex player that I can't remember now. And the third one was the duo. Right. It was Marco Benevento and Joe Russo. And that was the one that stuck. And we would just go down there yeah, and improvise every Thursday and we did it for like 10 months yeah. I think. And we started kind of like getting tunes together and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it went Madonna birthday bash as a proven duo. And, right. then, and then we moved that over to the Knitting Factory. And when did it kind of turn into, all right, we're making a record, we're going to tour this thing? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know exactly what year it was. Maybe it was like 2002. Marco like booked us a tour like across across the country because he he got us a gig at the High Sierra Festival oh, right. in California. Yeah. Okay. And we hadn't like toured ever, and but he like finagled his way in to that, I think through the Slip Guys. Yeah. And... Uh, and then he was like, fuck it, man, I'm just going to book a tour. And and like we just did like the Route 80 tour. I think it was like maybe like two and a half weeks long. It was like that thing where you just play and then you play back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and over the course of that tour, you know, we were still mostly improvising. We would, we would just go and, you know, all right, let's go make music. We were opening a lot for like, like Carl Denson or, or right. Galactic and people like that. We were kind of a, a good, easy opener. Uh, we'd yeah. always set up on the floor in front of the stage to, as to not mess with the headliner. And, and you know, it was kind of our thing. And we did that for, for a little while. And I think it started becoming a little jarring. I know for myself, I was like, man, I don't know if I want to be doing this every single night. You know, I really desperately wanted to be in like in Radiohead, basically. Yeah. I wanted to be in like, you know, this like kind of emotional, emotionally charged, dark 
kind of rock band. And uh, so we started kind of, you know, talking about that stuff. And and I had written a song that became a Sonny song on the first uh, proper duo record. Yep. And that was supposed to be for the band that I was about to put together. Right. You know, that was going to be just like a kind of a cure, you know, the national type kind of um, somber emo emo rock thing. And, and Marco uh, started just kind of playing it on the keyboard when we were messing around and and I think that was the first tune where we were like oh this could be cool like if we take the elements of of you know the instrumentation that we have but not have to be like funky organ dudes It's like, oh, cool, we can have an organ and a drum set, but we can also play like the kind of instrumental like rock. And then we started really getting into the idea of, of writing and, and started kind of writing these like um, instrumental like rock compositions. Marco started bringing more keyboards. I had like the sampler thing I would play melodies on and I would play some keyboards and some guitar. And yeah, it kind of just turned into what it turned into. And then we made the two the two proper records, I think in 2005 and 2006 uh, of, of all that stuff. And did you guys like did touring? Because I don't even remember back then. Because I just I always knew you guys when I'd come to New, when you come to New York, I would see you guys. I'd see you at festivals. Right. Were you guys? Did you guys ramp up to touring kind of like throughout the year? Oh yeah, I remember like it was either jam bands or jam bass or something would have like stats of like touring bands. Yeah, and I think we were like on the road for like three hundred days or something like that. Oh, and like Jacob Fred was like. 40 more dates. Like, I remember, like, those guys were even more crazy. But, yeah, we were gone all the time. But we were kids. We didn't have, you know, I, I didn't have a home. I would crash at Marco's place. Yeah, yeah. Relationships were iffy at that time. And, yeah. uh, you know, we just, it was like, shit, man, let's go on the road. And, uh, I mean, pretty much the same as you guys. Like, we're, yeah, you know, we were th- those gone. years, you're just gone, right? I mean, yeah, well, there was a while there where we, like, kind of crashed at my mom's house in Vermont, which is so totally. funny. We would, like, set up in the living room there. And rehearse mm-hmm. and record and whatever, and then just go out on the road for however long, crash <laughs> right. wherever. Yep, and just totally. and just just grind so hard. That was it, and 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 that seemed like that was what you were supposed to do. Right. You know, it wasn't until right. many years later I was like, oh, you don't have to throw like an asshole to, to do this. Um, but but in those days you do though. You know, it's like when you're when you're coming up, it's like you better be in that goddamn van. You better be right. sleeping on a dog piss covered couch some assholes house stuff you played in half empty bar and by half i mean mostly empty bar but yeah and then we you know once we started kind of getting our our thing together musically you know i think we kind of honed a little bit of a tighter course and then that led into the fish involvement stuff where where mike gordon started playing with us and stuff um, yeah how did that happen did he just see you guys or he was a fan and, and reached out so you know your brother's place was near the knitting factory yeah. mike's apartment was literally I, above the. Knitting i remember factory. that i used to see him right? at the knitting factory often yeah yeah so he would just come down there and hang out and i think yeah he came down there I think he saw us at the tap bar, something like that. Um, Andy Blackman from Rope Dope Records, which is what yeah. Marco and I were on at that yeah. time, 
was putting out one of Mike's solo records and Mike was looking for a drummer and Andy put us together. So Mike and I, we played a little bit together. I was, I was in Robert Walter's band at the time also, and right. I was touring like crazy with him and it, the, the Mike thing didn't work out and we stayed in touch. And the first year that Headcount became a thing, they were doing a, um, like a fundraiser concert, I think at BB Kings. Right. And I remember talking with, uh, Bernstein and, uh, and, and, and Mark Brownstein. And they were like, all right, you know, do, will you come do something? I think I was like, well, if we want people to come out, I could call Mike from fish, you know? And so I called, they're like, fuck yeah. And I, uh, I remember calling Mike and, and kind of giving the whole deal of like, oh, you know, this is going to be a voter registration thing. And we were hoping you'd join us as a trio. And he's like, well, how much rehearsal? And I was like, none, you know, <laughs> it's just gonna be improvised. He's like, great. I'm in. So we essentially all met on stage. You know, I, I think I met him once before in passing, but we just got on stage and improvised for about, I think an hour. And that was the beginning of that. And then we all became super tight. Eventually would go on like all these like micro tours with, with uh, the duo and Mike. And we would play, um, you know, some random covers, duo stuff. We'd do some fish tunes. And, uh, and then that led into eventually doing that band plus Trey. And there was, what was the tour that was like, cause there was a bunch of bands on that, right? That grab and it was. It, with grab. It, that was, yeah, that was us and, and Phil and friends. Right. And, and that's where and I friends. met, that's where I met Phil. Right. Which turns into all another life cycle. Right. Right. And that um, was grab. Right. That was grab Gordon <laughs> Russo, Anastasio Benevento. Well, if it's with a large A, that means Trey's there. If it's a little A, it just means Gordon Russo and Benevento. I remember back in that time period at, you and I and Mar it was Mark. Yeah, the three of us. You and I and Marco did a wedding gig in Costa Rica. Do you remember this? I completely remember. And this. we yeah. went down there. And I, I let me let me know if I'm saying that, if I'm telling the right story. Sure, sure. But yeah. I think during that we had our, you know phone service. And then right. I think when we come came back, we came into range, and you had gotten a call either from Phil or someone in that camp. Am I telling that right, or am I like it's it's, it's similar? It's yeah. similar. So yeah. what happened? So 2006 was that tour with Phil where I hadn't really met him very much, but, you know, we'd cross paths and stuff. We played at the Bonnaroo thing together for to announce that tour. And I think like a month before that um, that wedding we played, I had gotten a call from Matt Bush, Bob Weir's manager, like leaving him like this cryptic message on my right. on my phone, some, something about coming out west and playing with Bob and Phil and, you know, give him a call back. And I was like, fucking what? Like... This is a very strange call to get. And I kind of just, at that point, just thought it was like, oh, cool. It's going to be like some sort of benefit gig or something. And I was like, sure, absolutely. So they started sending me all these tunes. That's right, what it was. Right. Like, and I think by the time that you and I were down there with Marco, I had like 60 songs that yeah. I had to learn. Right, right. But I was in Costa Rica with you assholes. And yeah. I couldn't tell anybody <laughs> what was going on. So I would just listen on, on headphones to all these songs that I never heard because I was in Into the Dead. Well, I remember this. Okay, so that's funny because that's revealing because I know you didn't tell me you had the gig or anything, but we were talking right. about it. And 
that you were like maybe one of the first people outside of my like very closest friends that I revealed my secret deadheadness to was like on that trip because <laughs> right, I was like, well, did they send you five eight seventy seven? Right, know? right, <laughs> totally, totally. And I started getting it because like at that time I was actually kind of getting back into. So I was a deadhead like pre like musician. You know, I was like a right. deadhead as a kid. My brother was a deadhead. Brought me to shows mm-hmm. when I was like twelve. You know, right. And then when I got really deep into playing, I kind of left it. You know, I was like, you know, you know how it is. It's like, yeah, at Berkeley, absolutely. no one's listening to the dead. You know, not 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 then. Yeah, yeah, not then. Yeah. Right, right. That's probably that's <laughs> yeah. changed. But right. uh, yeah, because you, like you said, you didn't really know what the hell you were getting into. And I was like, well, right. there's this era, the '70s right. era. There's totally. like the Brent era. The yeah, mini- actually, yeah, now I do remember. We were like in like the the commuter van thing, the van or whatever, getting, going all going going these the crazy. Venue, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and, and we were chatting about that. And yeah, and I kind of still didn't know what was up. And I was, I went right from Costa Rica, I think, to California. Yeah. And to what eventually became an audition that I didn't know was an audition for further, you know, which is something I did for however many years after that, five years, I think that band lasted. And that was my indoctrination to that, that whole, whole world. Jumping right into a band with Bob and Phil in it. I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. just like, what was going through your mind? Oh man. And did you, did you know the dynamics of the relationships or were you just kind of thrust into this? I, I learned them very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know shit. I didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. I, I quit, you know, my high school band because they were playing Grateful Dead covers. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I was just not there uh, I, until just before I got that call because Tommy Hamilton and I was playing in, in his band at the time, American Babies, and he's a huge dead. And he was always like, Russo, stop being a fucking prick. You know, yeah. listen to this. And about a year before that, I was like, oh, man, this shit's pretty awesome. OK, my bad. Yeah. Um, but I still didn't really know anything except for the stuff I knew from high school, which was like the most obvious stuff, you know, the Grateful Dead starter pack, you know, Scarlet Begonias and Shakedown and stuff like that. And I start getting this, these tunes, you know, it's blowing my mind, shit like King Solomon's Marbles and oh, the yeah. Eleven. And oh, they had yeah. sent like all the hardest shit kind of thing, uh, which was cool. So it was just full immersion. I didn't know anything about Bob. I didn't, I barely knew Phil. I really didn't know much about the Grateful Dead, or 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 at least I knew what I thought I knew, which was completely off base on almost every level. And I'm just now, just you know, I was thirty something, and now just discovering this book properly for the first time in my life. Um, so it was it was overwhelming, um, but it was cool. It was really cool to be on the inside of something that at the time I didn't I didn't cherish maybe as much as everybody else in the room, you know, or like didn't. Like I had the safety of anonymity because I was just there, you know, doing the music thing. I, there was none of the baggage there as a fan, which I think is why Phil picked me, to be honest. You know, I think his whole deal was like he wanted to get someone. And to his credit, I've seen him do this a number of times. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he wants to bring in. I mean, Jesus, the, that time that the three of us played together in, in the park, yeah. you know, that was. Yeah. He, he's always down uh, for that stuff. And I, I do believe that he kind of was like, let's find someone who's not on the inside of this thing. Uh for this next next project and uh, I was certainly as as far out of it as as one could be I think And 
yeah, you know, fell in love with the music and, and it was incredibly humbling and I learned so much as a musician. I learned so much about me, you know, I learned about, you know, not being so quick to judge shit, you know, I, like I did when I was a kid, you know, I, I definitely had the hindsight of being a grown ass man by that point. So, yeah. you know, it's easy, easier to be, be humbled by that stuff. But yeah, I mean, fuck it changed my life on so many, so many levels. And those years with, with Bob and Phil, you know, the hardest parts of those years, just like anything else become the most informative and the stuff you, you learn, you know, the, the push and pull that those guys had, uh, musically and and uh you know socially and whatever stuff they would be working out on stage it w- it was pretty dicey being in the middle of that some nights but i've i learned a lot i know i've watched phil put drummers through some crazy shit yeah man <laughs> he's very specific with what he wants but also wants you to do your own thing it's kind of this yeah. interesting it, combination it, it is it is it's uh he's he's an incredible dude you yeah, know and and i think he he knows exactly what he doesn't want you know that's like true. so when, if that's he if true. he tells you like what to do it's like pretty much him being like don't fucking do this but then the world is your oyster go go do whatever you want until i tell you maybe to right. stop fucking doing that you know right he's definitely quick to tell you but also yeah i mean but also really supportive of incredibly doing yeah. your thing with it when you were learning the music and like diving into the massive catalog were you kind of like zoning out or like canceling out what was going on with the drums and doing your own thing with it? Or was it, or were you actually like learning specific parts? Like how was, what was your approach like? Yeah, I think pretty much because of the, the sheer amount of information that was coming at me, like I had those 60 tunes that became the audition. um, And then I had, once we had, you know, established that this was going to be a band, we did like these 10 tiny shows in a row up in Marin. And every morning I'd wake up with just names of songs in my inbox, 10, you yeah. know, and those were going to be played that night. No recordings, no this, no that. And what I quickly realized was this shit was all over the shop. They didn't do anything like they did in 72. They didn't do it like this. So I would essentially take a studio version if there was one. I'd take a live show from the 70s or the 60s. I'd take a live show from the 80s or a live version of that song from the 80s, and then I'd take one from the most recent Dead Tour. And I would try to find the center ground of just what the music was. I I didn't have time to listen to the drumming, you know? Which I think was awesome because it's like I wasn't trying to do anything. You know, if there there were some, like, rhythmic hooks that stuck out, of course I'd I'd adapt those, you know? But uh, as far as uh, the concept and and I think the approach to to the material... I didn't have the luxury of, of time and, and I, you know, just learned it like I would learn any, any other gig and then do what I would hear on it, you know? All right. The first Phil run that I did, I think I got like 60 songs or something like that because it was a run at the Capitol Theater like the, right. a day or two before. You might have been on drums during that, actually. I think I was, yeah. And I was stressed out, man. Oh, dude. <laughs> I Yeah, man. The, the stress that I've seen... Uh, it's funny because I had gone through it. So then those years where we were doing all those caps and all the Terrapin yeah. uh, Crossroads stuff, and I was like now like the elder statesman who had already been like through the the, the ringer with that. And I'd see you poor bastards come in and like knowing yeah. that they weren't sending you songs until like fucking like 3 a.m. the night before. Yeah. You know, like there was no, just no sleep bags under the eyes. Oh, I remember dude. looking at you, though, and you'd be smiling. I was actually really happy <laughs> that you were like my support 
you know, during that. You're like, you <laughs> I got this, I bro, don't worry. Because even if you oh, fuck totally. up, it's, it's all right, you know? Well, that's the other thing. It's like, it's such, it's such its own world that is so cool. Because, you know, it's like, while we come from, you know, improv backgrounds, you know, I still feel like where we come from, yeah, you're going to improvise, but you better fucking stick that landing, you know? Right, and and right. like, there, there was a little bit more of a precision thing, I think, that we were invested in in our younger years. And the freedom that you get once you enter this world, you know, where it's like, yeah, nobody fucking dies if you, if you, you know, blow a line or whatever, like, you know, or drop a lyric fucking, well, you know, I think people that's get like excited. I know what's so ballsy about Phil and like the dead's approach in general is they'll like kind of laugh off a, a calamity. You know, totally. like, I mean, they're not psyched about it, but it's like, that's part <laughs> right. of the thing is that well. they're going for it. And like, he'll want to let, he'll, he'll throw in a different song right on the fly or change a key mm-hmm. or whatever. And yeah. not everyone's going to land, but it also makes it so when you do land, it's kind of like this more epic than totally. anything, you know? Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that, that lesson it's such a huge one to learn, and and I completely uh, owe that to Bob and Phil and that world of like, just not being afraid to really truly go for it. Because if you don't, if you fuck up, it really doesn't matter. Like really yeah. believing that of just like who fucking cares? You go for way cooler shit. I also think their audience kind of wants it. Like part of what's unique about seeing a Grateful Dead show is that you're gonna hear fuck ups and it's gonna be different. <laughs> totally. And the, yeah. the crowd kind of likes that because it really defines that experience versus like the album or whatever other right. version you might. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a genuine moment, be it uh, yes. golden or shitty. I actually thought that me that that growing up on the music was really gonna help uh, my decisions and help my help me, and it did overall. But I remember specifically, like I grew up listening to uh, "Help on the Way," uh, uh, Slipknot. A uh-huh. very specific version. Like I used to listen to the one from the vault, I think was the one. And I used to, uh-huh. and, and then the album. So I knew that one. And I remember, I think you were probably on the gig and I was like, oh man, I'm going to nail this. I, cause I learned that when I was a kid, like the classic, that was like the guitar player, like, wow, oh, that shit is badass. And I learned, and yeah. I used to play it as a, I, like, I remember that was like when I reconnected with the dead, I was like, oh, well that's badass. I'm going to learn that, that thing. From totally. it. So I had, that and I like practiced it and practiced it and I got there to the gig and it was completely different because I guess they changed yeah. it in like the 80s You're like hey that part's not in 7 anymore pal <laughs> like straight up that's the shit that would happen you're like oh, oh yeah. fuck this is nothing like the thing you learned and yeah. I remember the calamity I think it's like Warren <laughs> was on it too and he's looking at oh, me like man. no don't do it and I'm like oh man I was so embarrassed they lived through it you know or at least you know when it was Bob and Phil or even when it's just Phil, it's like they live through all those subtle changes in their repertoire. So they're not going to be like, Oh dude, just so you know, that part's not in seven anymore. Cause like, yeah. it hasn't been fucking seven. We lived through it. You For know, it's 30 like, years. just like, yeah, something you've written that's, you know, naturally changed over the years. You wouldn't think to be like, Oh, Hey dude, who's playing my song. Here's the thing that happened that, you know, it's like, there's no, there's no reason for recollection. And I, and we've all been burned by that. Oh, like loose Lucy. Yeah. There was like a bar of fucking seven in that shit when I learned it, right. you know, without, and, and then I went to go play it at the audition or whatever. And I'm fucking up cause I'm playing it the right way. 
yeah. you know, or at least from the the recording, and nobody, nobody, like, oh yeah, we don't do that shit anymore. Yeah, soon after that, I started looking up uh, like Phil and Friends <laughs> versions or, or right. other versions, but yeah. yeah, initially, I guess I was just so stoked to revisit these songs from my youth too, because I was like, oh yeah. man, like I'm gonna, this old recording, because it's like s- serious nostalgia. It's like also. You know, I don't know, going back to Zeppelin, like I, I listen to Zeppelin records now and I can like remember like the feeling of like the girlfriend that dissed me, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> totally, like, totally. like, like yeah. the smell of like my basement, you know what I mean? There's like certain oh, emotion that's so connected to like Absolutely. specific Absolutely. recordings. It's, it's, I've been, I've been experiencing that a lot lately too. Just got a lot of time on my hands and I, you know, right. having a kid and being around the house, I like put on old records and listen to my records again. And it just brings you back to an it's, it's so feeling. real. It's so real. I, yeah, man, I, I, I couldn't agree more, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's cool for you to have that experience with the Grateful Dead and then get to play that music, you know, like that's cool. I, 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 you know, I don't have that. Like it would be yeah. as if I, if I got to play with like, Jimmy Page. Right, right. That that would be akin to, you know, uh that kind of a thing cuz yeah, I just I didn't have the the history in my DNA with this music unfortunately/fortunately. slash fortunately. Right, um, right. I, <laughs> yeah, my dad came and saw one of the gigs that uh and you know, he he and you know, he listened to the dead a little bit, but he was more like Beatles and Stones, but he had some some dead in the catalog, but when I was a kid and I'd be listening to the dead and wearing tie-dyes and going to shows right. and stuff, he was kind of like you know, he was fine with it, but he was like, you know, a little puzzled by it. But then like years and years later, then I'm playing with Phil and he like came and he was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And they had a really funny conversation about, you know, me and my room, like smelled a little funny outside of the door. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> the classic. We'll be right back after this short break. Bustle, you, Marco, Dave Drywitz, uh, and and Metzger. So that that started from the Freaks Ball, right? Was that was that, that how that was an, that, that was another Jake? That was, was Jake for Jake's right. for Jake's thirtieth birthday. He wanted me and Marco and Metzger. This is pre Drywitz to play a set of Zeppelin for his birthday on, uh-huh. on one of the boat cruises. I think. Uh, I don't know how long we were a band before Dave joined, but I remember, um, you know, Scott was homies with all the ween guys, you know, growing up in this, in this area. Right. And, uh, he's like, man, you know, I know the, know the bass player from ween, you know, and he loves Zeppelin. And I ended up meeting him, uh, in new Orleans jazz fest. Uh, there was a night where ween and I think like Modesky, Martin and Wood were on the same bill, which is fucking crazy and after meeting dave and he was like oh hey yeah i heard you guys just know you know i can fucking kill that shit you know and, yeah. and we're like all right you're awesome great and he came and uh and we did like a rehearsal uh wherever the hell we were playing music at the time and, and he just killed it and it was awesome we're like yay this is the band and then that was it and we would do that a couple times a year something like that it never really i think at the at most we probably did like you know eight gigs one year was like a yeah. tremendous amount. Um, and yeah, that was just kind of like the, uh, this fun, like back pocket gig that we got to do and just like 
like I said, you know, back in your in your middle school bedroom, cranking Zeppelin tunes in your headphones and uh, and then getting to do it in front of people. I remember though, and it was an early Brooklyn Bowl, must have been, must have been because mm-hmm. it was pre J Rad, and you guys did a bustle gig. And I came uh, by, you know, that was like when I was living right down the street. So I would like come on the back oh, door. Right, I'd be like, what's going point, on yeah. in here? And I heard like, and I, I, th- I probably knew you guys were playing, but it was one of those things where I'd, I'd just always come if one of my friends yeah. was playing and I was home. And yeah. you guys did uh, Heartbreaker and Metzger did the solo. And I literally, <laughs> like, I think I threw something at him. I was like That's one awesome. of those. I, he crushed the solo. So I was right. like, and I always was a Metzger fan. But that right. was the moment where I was like, okay, this dude, like, did the Jimmy Page exact and then took it right. to a whole other place. And what's funny about Scott is he's. He to Zeppelin is me to the Grateful Dead. He didn't listen to Zeppelin. Wow. He fucking had to learn all that shit when we did the first gig. And wow, you know, you look back and you're like, if that music isn't in your DNA, it's almost impossible to do it legitimately. Yeah. And he somehow did, which is fucking crazy. Yeah. Uh, I That's still interesting. Like, I, I just always right? assumed he was like a major Zeppelin dude. I mean, he he went he went there eventually, yeah. but yeah, Crazy. he didn't grow up. You know, he was he was like into a lot of like punk rock and stuff, and I don't think it really crossed into the classic rock uh, as much. But it, that is a strange one for a guitarist to not visit for a little while. But then yeah. you know he got there. The same thing. It's like me with the Dead, where it's like I didn't grow up listening to it. It's not in my history, but it has now informed my musical world and DNA, you know, so much. And that's like the thing with Metzger. So it's funny because he did. He he fucking owns that shit. So right, hard. Right. It's really funny. So tell me like a little bit about the, or tell the people a little about the Freaks right. Network slash Freaks Ball. Right. The Freaks, the New York City Freaks. Uh, yeah, New York City Freaks. Basically just a, a, this rabid live music posse of, of music fans who I think originally it was just like some sort of online listserv, I think, where they would kind of give listings for the shows. I think there was like a chat group, I think, you know, some stuff like that. And they would just throw their full support behind bands they loved, you know. Uh, And they started throwing a party called the Freaks Ball, which I think like 15 years ago. Well, I know Soul Live, and I I don't know if this is going to be exactly right, played, it was Sam's birthday, but it was... Costello was like saying that maybe that was kind of, I don't know if it, it might've been a prelude to what became the freaks ball, but he okay. was like, that was kind of the first thing. It's, we right. were kind of on the fringe of it, but our very close mutual friend slash family is Pete Costello, who was mm-hmm. uh, my connection into it. So he would, right. I never was like checking it out and everything, but every once in a while, cause he was soul lives tour manager for a while, right. yeah. which was a funny story because he was a taper and we'd yeah. come out and tape all our shows. And there was a while where he'd all, we'd always see him at the, we used to, we did a thing at Baby Jupiter, which I don't know oh, if you yeah. remember that remember, place. I, I, hell yeah. It was a really fun hang. And we, that was like our, but like your version of the Knitting Factory, we, we a few years prior, yeah. we yeah. were doing every week at Baby Jupiter. And we'd always see him there. And then he started kind of coming out of town. I think he had just quit his job. He came to right. Syracuse. He came to Ithaca. And we saw him there. And then like, we kind of needed help. He at the So after the show, he'd kind of help us wrap things up and whatever. And then we were like, do you just want to like ride with us and help <laughs> out? And he was like, uh, sure. That's awesome. So he started rolling with us, eventually became our, our tour manager, but he mm-hmm. would tie me into things like that, you know, like, because right. it, you know, I didn't, there was, I don't think there was much social media. So it was just at no, that point, no. 
like you said, listservs, things yeah. like that. And I remember when you guys were, were starting up, he was like, man, you know, the duos are doing it on the, on the freak serve. I'm like, the freaks, what? <laughs> right. I and, uh, but then the freaks ball, but kind of became this like legendary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Built into a lot of, you know, cool collaborations. There was always something, you know, you and I have done it a couple times. I think, we yeah. did it once with Neil, right? Was that the stirs? The stirs, which I'm. It's, we need to bring that back one of these days. No, that show was good, man. Bustle's booked for Freaks Ball, and it's a two nighter. Mm. Am I am I, am I telling this right? And then Pretty the much, second yes. night they want to flip it up, right? Which was supposed to be the Dean Ween group. Oh, I see. So it was supposed to be Bustle, and then the Dean Ween group, which was going to be Mickey, myself, Scott, and Dave. Which is actually the same band as the Gene Ween band. <laughs> yes, I, which you also did a run with that. Like you played drums in the Gene Ween. We band did that, and that was that was me, Scott, and Dave. Okay, I see. So that's right. the funny, you know. So it was right. this thing, and as it got closer, I think Mickey was just busy with shit, and we didn't quite get a chance to like get it going, and he pulled the plug. Yeah, and so um, the people were kind of scrambling. Like, ah, oh, do we do two nights of bustle? And I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to do fucking two nights of bustle, you know. Let's find something else. And uh, from my recollection, uh, Costello was like, hey, man, you know, what if you did like a dead thing? Because I was in further at the time, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I'm in further. That's weird. Like, like in the dead thing. Like, yeah. I'm not, no, I don't want to fucking do that. He's like, well, what if like bustle plays the dead? I was like, dude, totally different thing because the lyrics yeah, for the Grateful Dead yeah, yeah. is way different than the lyrics for Zeppelin. You know, it's like you can get away playing instrumental Zeppelin, but yeah. like, you know, the lyrics. So, you know, basically he, he wore me down. Uh, and then we came to the idea of, all right, well let's have it be bustle. We'll add Hamilton. Cause he actually knows all this shit. You know, he knows all the dead. He can sing. I guess Scott can try to sing the Bobby stuff and yeah. we'll just do this thing. We'll play, you know, two sets. So when Further started, you know, we were at Phil's house where it was a band, but there was no name and the people were throwing names around. And the back of my head, I so badly wanted to say, like, we should call it Almost Dead. But I thought that was like kind of dark because those dudes were like kind of old, old and shit. And I was like, <laughs> but I thought it was fucking hilarious. And I'm like over here yeah. just like giggling yeah. like an asshole and never said anything. And so when we were, you know, cause, and also it's like a cover band. So it's like, it's yeah. almost dead. You it's know, I thought dead. it was fucking genius. Yeah, that was genius. Um, didn't bring it up there. Uh and then, you know, Peter and I are talking. He's like, what do you want to call it? I was like, well, let's, let's call it Almost Dead, you know? And he's like, well, we should put your name on it, you know, just in case maybe like some further people come or whatever. And I was like, all right. He's like, well, you know, if you call it Joe Russo's Almost Dead, it says J-Red. I was like, oh, that's cool. I like that. And that's how that got decided. And, uh, yeah, we, we basically, uh, I just wrote up one show. This was never going to happen again. And we, uh, you know, did this gig. Somehow it turns out Scott Metzger sounds just like fucking Bob Weir when he sings, which yep. is crazy because Scott yep. hadn't sang in years either. You know, right. he sang with Rana. Yeah. That band had broken up in a long time and he was mostly doing like session stuff and, and instrumental work. I wish I remember what song it was that he first sang where all of us are just like laughing. So like, dude, you sound like Bob Weir. What the fuck? So it just it just ended up being this like beautiful thing. And it was zero pressure because it was never going to happen again. And it was kind of this opportunity to play this music with my homies and kind of play it in the way that I had kind of wanted to play it in further, you yeah. know, like a little bit more aggressive and, and, and just like, just not giving a fuck, D treating it like the way we all treated every music we played together. 
And, you know, we did that that one night and that's exactly what we did. And then. And what what happened from there? Was it like the recording kind of circulated and exactly and people people started talking about it? And then uh, I'm sure Pete came back and said, listen, man, we got to do this (laughs) again. Pretty. Yeah. I mean, pretty much we walked off stage. Like not really knowing if that was that cool, because I think the crowd at that time we weren't feeling like, oh my God, everybody loved that. You know, right. that that wasn't the the feeling we had felt. We were just like, all right, cool. That was weird. Let's go upstairs, you know. And then like a couple of days later, you know, people start talking about it and, you know, there's some articles written and the recording starts kind of getting out there. And it, I think kind of the the general idea that's been conveyed to me was the crowd was dumbfounded <laughs> that night. Right. And that's why it was kind of just like, because, you know, it really was like, you know, kind of, watching your favorite little stuffy doll you know, get tattoos and, you know, whatever. Like it was, it was, it was a bit of a, a ragged uh, interpretation. So uh, yeah, like the, you know, the, the idea of this thing kept coming back into our, into our world. And we were like, no, man, we're, no, that's it. We did it the one time. That was it. This isn't going to be a thing. I'm in further, yeah. you know, still. Uh, and then Shapiro basically convinced me, you know, I think the next gig was almost a year later and he was like, but we're doing it at the cap. I was like, dude, we're not doing our second gig at the fucking cap, you yeah. know? And of course, you know, Shapiro, uh, he was right. And we, you know, we did our second gig at the cap and it was just shy of selling out. And it was another fun night, you know, a whole new, whole new chunk of tunes that all of these guys are learning also for the first time. So it touches upon that, that spirit of when I joined further and kind of seeing these guys work through it and again, putting their own stamp on it because aside from Tommy, there wasn't another like real deep deadhead in the band. Those guys certainly more, more casual fans than I was when I got the further gig, but it was, it was really fun to watch because it's like you, you, you get the parts that you have to get and then the rest is, is you. And I think that's, what's informed this thing, you know, over, over all these years. And I think, yeah, we played like five gigs the next year. And I think we played like 13 gigs the next year. When did further for you? Uh, so in the beginning, they were both happening. And then for, when did further actually? I think further ended pretty soon into that. I think right. maybe by our second gig as J-Red, it was, it was done already. But then I was right. signed on with Phil and continued with him for the next year or two through all of his Capitol Theater stuff and, and all, the, uh, all the Terrapin stuff. And... Uh, you know, and then he eventually did a New Year's run at the Cap with J Rad. Right, I remember that. So yeah. I think maybe that was like our third gig. I don't even fucking know. But yeah, and then it's just turned into this thing. And this was all before the GD fifty. This was all before all this stuff. Right, right. Which is kind of why I'm still okay with doing it, and why I'm st- still psyched about it, is because there wasn't a contrived moment about it ever. There right, was never right. a hey, here's what we should do. Well, you that's know? also speaks it's probably why it's so great you know what i mean i feel like whenever you like are chasing something it never really pans out you know what i mean totally yeah and we truly didn't care about it (laughs) i love the because you know the grateful dead songbook i mean it's kind of like become like a real book of its of its own Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so if you inject really great musicianship and the right like intent with it it's it's right. great, but what you guys do is is totally unique, you know. And it's totally, mm-hmm. and I think also the modern Grateful Dead fan likes a lot of other music. You know, they like right. rock and roll, they like Black yeah. Sabbath, they like hip hop. 
You oh, know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's different Agreed. than like back in the day, you know, right. a little bit. Right. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're all lucky to have our influences show. Like when you play, you know, you, you get to show everything else plus what created that original sound. Yeah. completely blown away at what's happened with it in in terms of like i mean you guys are selling out massive yeah venues every, and just every like, single time every yeah. single night that we do this all of us realize how absolutely lucky we are and we're shocked every night that we yeah. get to go out and do this and and it's so deep for us because we get to do this you know, like we were going back talking about these people who've been next to you for the last 30 years. That's what this yeah. band is. Like, we've all been in each other's bands. We've all yeah. eaten the shit sandwich together <laughs> for most of our careers. And it's really nice to be able to share uh, this incredible, very odd, very unique, one-of-a-kind experience together. Uh, we're, we're constantly dumbfounded by the fact that it's what it is. But... um you know, certainly we we respect we respect it and we appreciate what we get to do. You know, every single day, I'm thankful for for what this thing has has become. I uh, saw you guys at the Greek Theater last year. I mean, I just love that venue. Yeah, and, but I just just walking in there, and the homies on stage, and then I look up, and it's just like packed all the way up the hill, and right. people are just like freaking out. And also, what you guys do to it is really your own you know there's yeah. it's it's i it's hard to really call it a cover band because you mm -hmm. guys are take i mean you don't call like when you go see um like the baddest jazz dudes downtown you don't call them a cover band because they play all real right. book songs <laughs> right right because yeah i think like what you said you're infusing your personality and your musicianship into these like amazing songs you know yeah i mean we're just we're just lucky to get to play this source material and have people be okay with what we're doing with it. And it, it always strikes me also as strange as this music has been so cherished that it feels like nobody really ever strangely kind of took it for a spin, you know, like yeah. I feel like everybody would hold so true to the, to the source material that while I think we do something cool and interesting with it, it's really not a far out concept. We just kind of did it, you know, like yeah, we yeah. kind of just didn't cherish it in such a way that we had to, you know, use the exact same dialect as the people that, that originally wrote it, you know. Are you like the architect of the set lists and stuff like that? Or is it is it is it a group effort? How How does that happen? No, I pretty much write them all. I, I enjoy doing that. It's getting getting harder though. It's getting harder than it, than it used to be. It was really easy to write cool set lists the first couple of years, you know. Because I was like, because again, like just not having the shackles of history, of like, well, this has to follow this, and you can't play that in the first set, and they wouldn't have never. It's like, well, I don't know that. So cool. Like I've 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 heard comments on like, you know, write a certain set and 
Cost, you know, Costello is always the ear to the ear to the ground on everything. And he's like, dude, people were freaking out because, you know, you did this on this day and that means this. I was like, I fucking I had no, no idea, idea that that was that was that was a thing. I had nothing. Is it pretty mapped out that Tommy sings Jerry and uh, and Scott does the Bobby or is that it, it kind of is now, yeah. you know, the first gig that we did. We, we took more liberties because it was, again, we weren't trying to kind of fulfill that role. Like, I think I sang a couple tunes and it was a little bit more kind of going for it. I think once we started getting into the material, into deeper into the material and learning all these songs and it becoming like a real thing, I think there were certain avenues that we decided to take with with that, you know. Um, it kind of naturally felt found its way there yeah, and it yeah. was like, well, fuck it, let's not fight it, you know. But that said... You know, Scott will do also like some pig pen tunes and Mark will sing some shit and I'll sing some shit. Um, I, I tend to f- sing the Phil stuff, I guess. And then Dave will, will sing, you know, a couple times a year and it's the best thing that's ever happened. Uh, and it's often a deep, you know, 70s rock song that no one in that place has ever heard. Right, right, right. You know, and that's the other thing. It's like we get to really inject whatever we want into, into the thing, you know, like that the show you were at, you know, we we had Eric Johnson from Fruit Bats, and we're like, we're gonna play a fucking Fruit Bats tune because yeah, I yeah, that was a that was a nice surprise. I'm a I'm a Fruit Bats fan. You know, we did like a Zombies tune. We've done uh, Father John Misty. We've done you know Radiohead. We've done this and that. We've done kind of whatever. You know, it's and that's the fun thing too. I think people now expect from us that we do kind of have that that fearless attempt at just putting on a cool show. You know, whatever, whatever the, the, you know, it's clearly going to be mostly Grateful Dead music, but, uh, you know, we're not afraid to pull from, from some, uh, some random, random spots, you know. Do you guys rehearse at this point or is it kind of like get out there on the road and work things out at, at sound check type of thing? Yeah. For the most part, I, it'll be interesting to see now when we get back after all this, cause we rehearsed like proper rehearsal, like learning the material for that first year, few times, maybe 10 times over the first couple of years. And then we, we hadn't rehearsed ever since we would, we would show up on stage. We would sound check if something needs dusting off or if there was something new, you know, uh, we would work it up in sound check. Or if we've been off for like a really long time, maybe we'll have one rehearsal day to kind of get some stuff together. But most of it, is just uh, whatever happens on stage, you know. So for you on the on the solo albums and solo music tip, are you working on anything now at the at the house? You know, I'm back. I'm back to square one where I have a lot of yeah. little parts, yeah, a lot of a lot, lot of parts that I like, and now I'm just waiting for inspiration to, to glue them together. I think I'm going to have an opportunity to get a uh, a room outside of the house pretty soon and cool. get all my fun fun toys back and. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that because I, I, I think I'm ready, ready to be doing some stuff. And I think I've just been uh, hit the pause button for a little while. So it'll 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 happen. Well, I look forward to hearing that. It's been great hearing the stuff you've put out in the last couple of years and like hearing Thanks, your musical man. direction. It's been it's been a, a treat. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of that. Oh, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Appreciate you being on the on the show, man. It was good. Thanks to for catch having up. me. I, I miss you. I can't wait to make music with you. I know. I mean, let's you, do it. You let's sent me it. an off an awesome riff. I need to I need to throw some drums on that. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time, my friend. And uh, thank you so much yeah, for having I hope me, we brother. Can hang and make music soon. Cannot wait. 
I want to thank Joe Russo for being on the show. So great to catch up with him. And uh, I just love hanging with that guy. He's a really great guy and an incredible musician. Before we go, we're going to play a track that he put out in 2020 under his name, Joe Russo. And this one is called Stay Light.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.